Hello, I'm your host, Anjana Kaushik Taluri, and this is the Stories of Feminine Science podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Stories of Feminine Science Graduate Student Edition. Today we'll be speaking to Sofia Rojas, who's a graduate student in astrophysics at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy, Heidelberg. Sofia was born and raised in Colombia. She studied astronomy and physics at the University of Texas at Austin. Throughout her time in UT, she received multiple scholarships from different donors at the university that helped fund her studies. She also received a couple of awards from the College of Natural Sciences and the university to showcase her research in conferences worldwide. She then received the IMPRS Fellowship to develop her PhD studies at the International Max Planck Research School, Heidelberg. She also recently received JWST time from a proposal, in which she was a co-PI with Dr. Michaela Bagley, to study galaxies in the beginning of the universe. Sophia's field of expertise is on the epoch of reionization which is the time when the universe went through a major transition from neutral to ionized hydrogen gas, that is it went from darkness to light. This process occurred at some point when the first galaxies formed until the universe was 1 billion years old, or at high redshifts of greater than 6. Specifically, she's focusing on the study of massive bright galaxies and quasars, which are galaxies hosting active supermassive black holes in their nuclei. The James Webb Space Telescope, or the JWST that I mentioned earlier, will be able to see back to about 100 million to 250 million years after the Big Bang. So it will play a key role in helping us probe the early universe and address how and when reionization occurred, what sources caused reionization, etc. Hi Sophia, how are you doing? Thanks a lot for being here. Hi, Anjana. I'm very good. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> We're really excited to get to know of your journey um, as an international student. And so I'm going to jump in and ask you about your childhood. Um, so could you tell me about your earliest interactions with science and the role that your family or society played in it? Yeah, so uh, in my family, on my fireside, there's a lot of like engineers and scientists, I guess. So I always had like that input. Uh, my grandpa was a very good like chemist, uh, very important in the country. He developed, he worked in the food industry. So he developed a lot of um, just food that was commercialized and everything. So I think it was always there. Um, but yeah, even since I was very little, um, my mom and my dad got me like Cosmos by Carl Sagan. So I also started, like, I think that's where I started to really like astronomy specifically. Um, I mean, also science in general, but yeah, I really enjoyed that. And um, my father had this like telescope. So I could sometimes, when there were clear skies in Bogota, that's where I'm from. Um, and it's usually very cloudy there. So when there were clear skies, I could sometimes see like, I don't know, a planet like Saturn or something. So that was, yeah, I, I really enjoyed science as a kid. And um, yeah, I live in a capital city, right? So there were a lot of museums and science centers. And my mom always like kept, kept an eye for those things to sign me up to 
go to these places and have fun. So yeah, I think I was I was lucky in that sense because not in all areas in Colombia you can have access to all these museums and stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty great to hear, to see that, you know, you were having at least some sort of exposure to science as a kid. And, you know, speaking more specifically about astronomy, when I studied in India as a student, um, you know, in, in school, I remember that we had very minimal exposure to astronomy. And looking back at my textbooks, like I recall having only one chapter um, that talked about like a solar system and maybe gave a brief overview about uh, the history of space telescopes. So um, I'm curious to know, like, is the situation somewhat similar in Colombia when we back to when you were a student? Um, you know, like, uh, did you have any exposure at all to astronomy? Um, so it was actually very similar to your experience. Uh, yeah, I remember specifically, I think it was sixth grade where we talk about uh, planets. And I remember talking about the Big Bang a little bit, like, I guess, history of the universe. But yeah, that was the only thing I got. And then when I started to take physics, so in Colombia, you take physics in the last two years of high school only. And um, I remember I, I, I was just one day reading a book about astronomy and my professor came to me and he was like, oh my God, I love the topic. He was my physics professor. He was like, I love the topic. We, if you want to you know, explore more, just come to my office hours and stuff. And yeah, with him, I get, he really helped me and supported me a lot on like encouraging me really to pursue physics or astronomy and make it happen. So I, I'm really thankful that in general, all the professors in my school were always helping me in that sense. So, yeah, but yeah, in Colombia is not um, like a part of the curriculum for either public or private schools, um, but we're trying to change that now. Um, Colombia has become a very um, emerging country in astronomy. That's how we call it now. And yeah, so I'm actually part of a, of a program called the Network of Colombian Astronomy Students. And most of us are outside of the country, but we still want to bring uh, astronomy to schools and we want to educate. So it's not uh, outreach specifically, it's actually education. So we give like mini classes and workshops on schools, but it's all virtual and it only works in, you know, the schools that have access to internet, which is not the majority in Colombia. So it's changing like right now in the last, I think three years, but when I was in school, like, yeah, it was almost nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that is such an important initiative because um, I think a lot of people are not going into astronomy simply because they're not aware that it's a field or a career, you know? Um, I think most people just think astronomy is equal to stargazing, whereas, you know, there's so much more, you know, chemistry, <laughs> physics and mathematics involved in astronomy beyond that. Um, that kind of leads me into how you got interested in astronomy. Like I know you mentioned that your physics teacher played an important role. Um, but when did you first decide to actually pursue astronomy as a career? So, yeah, that was difficult because in Colombia at the time, there were no undergraduate programs in astronomy. Um, but again, my mom took me <laughs> to this uh, festival, science festival in Bogota, and I met Adriana Ocampo, 
who is a Colombian who's worked, uh, who works right now in NASA, and she's done a lot of research on Jupiter. And I actually talked one-to-one to her, and she was just, it was honestly a five-minute conversation, something really short. And she was like, you can do it. Like, you can, if you want to come to NASA, like, I mean, you can do a science or you can do engineering, nanotechnology is the best thing right now. And like that to start, like that just kickstart me to start looking for universities in the U.S. And that's, and that was ninth grade for me. So that's, I think, when I really got serious and I sat down on an Excel spreadsheet and started to, you know, put name of university, link to scholarships, link to everything and application and everything. So I was very organized even since, you know, many years ago. So I think that's when it got like more serious for me. (laughs) That's actually quite early. Ninth grade is quite early to think about college or, you know, a career. So I'm really glad that you got a chance to meet with her because that seemed to be like the defining moment of when you decided to, you know, apply to schools in the U.S. and everything. But moving to a different country is a big step, right? Like even for education. So how did that transition go for you? You know, this is coming from a person who moved to the U.S. from India herself um, towards the end of high school. So I know it's a big change. So how did how did you feel about that? So I think um, it wasn't at the moment when I was, you know, looking for opportunities and when I actually like uh, signed up for uh, an English program, because first, when I first went to a US, it was to improve my English. That wasn't really great. And to learn how to apply to American institutions. Like I, I really needed that because in Colombia, I didn't know who could help me with that. <laughs> and um, for me at the moment, it didn't look like a, something like, a big step it was just something that came natural to me I took it very relaxed and a lot of people in my family really thought I was crazy like friends and family were like nah she's not gonna make it in the U.S. like what how <laughs> like I, I guess they think she's from Colombia and what's she gonna do how's she gonna work or study um, so I know in the beginning there wasn't that much uh, like moral support um, but, you know, it was more like this belief. It was not that they that my family and friends wanted to put me down. It was more like it was crazy. It was really crazy because when I left to the U.S., I was 16. And it wasn't until maybe a couple of weeks in the U.S. that I realized, like, wow, what am I doing? <laughs> I just literally flew to another country. I'm so young. And I'm like, um, yeah, doing roommates already. And <laughs> yes, and it was like, wow, okay, this is going to be really hard. The English classes were hard. The TOEFL was hard. The SAT was hard. Like everything just looked like it, it was so hard. So it shocked me there. But I'm very glad that it didn't before because otherwise maybe I would have never left the country. I don't know if maybe you had a similar experience, but yeah, that's what happened to me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot imagine coming in without, you know, uh, a good background in English, like that must have been extremely challenging, right? Was there any point when you felt that you wanted to give up, but somehow you kept going and what kept you going? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, it's just like, like in my school, the English was good level, but it wasn't a bilingual school. Like it was good, but 
yeah, when I arrived, I, I couldn't come up with vocabulary like to ask for cutlery or, you know, simple things like food. <laughs> it was really hard. Um, so yeah, especially, you know, even though you plan, I, I had planned things like, okay, first I study for the TOEFL and then this and then that, but you will always find obstacles in life. And the fact that I was like doing this uh, away from my family because, um, yeah, I was a, a little bit alone there. I had an aunt who helped me a lot, but I still felt like, okay, yeah, I don't know if I can do it. So it was a lot of, um, it was a time to grow a lot and become really responsible and be like, okay, <laughs> you cannot just throw all the effort that your family has already done to put you here in this country. So like, you have to keep going <laughs> somehow. <laughs> yeah. That is so inspiring to me. I cannot imagine being in that situation. And I think you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, it was hard, but somehow I did it. <laughs> yeah, you're here today. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I still remember like the first day I met you. Um, this was when I was a prospective student at UT. And mm -hmm. I had come in to just check out the campus and so forth. And you were on a student panel. And I remember thinking, wow, like she's the only international student on that panel. And I really relate to her because I'm an international student too. And so having you on that panel was very important for me and in my decision to go to that particular college because it, it really impacted how I felt about the program in general, you know? So really? I don't know. Oh, like, I'm so glad that helped yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. So I'm... I've seen you personally, you know, throughout your journey at UT, but I would still like to know and let our listeners know, like, specifics about your journey at UT. So could you share with us how you quickly found your feet um, and, you know, kind of navigated through undergrad in general? Yeah, so I think um, every year was different, right? Um, every year there's different classes, different people you meet, so the challenge changes. Um, but yeah, so when I when I started uh, in my first semester, I was already looking for opportunities to do research because I could get a discount on the tuition and to pay as a resident if I became an undergraduate research assistant. So I had to find either a lab in physics or a professor in physics or astronomy who could like, you know, just have a project for me to work on. And I was very lucky when I found Dr. Steven Finkelstein because really I was a newbie, uh, but he was—he didn't care. He was like, you can learn with me just, and he taught me like so much on coding. I didn't know how to code very well. I had taken one class that semester, but you know, it was a journey. So uh, yeah, so I think part of, of my particular experience in college was uh, very challenging because I had to always look out for scholarships uh, because even though I, I could get the, the in-residence tuition, it was still a lot that <laughs> neither me or my family will ever afford. So I will always try to get as many scholarships as I could. So I, yeah, that was especially in April where was the month where the major scholarships uh, deadlines happened. So I was always working really hard to, you know, get a very nice GPA. So I will get more chances to get the scholarship and I would apply to scholarship and I will work, you know, 20 hours a week on research and the rest on all the classes I had to take. 
So, yeah, and I think uh, when probably when you had the orientation and I was there, that was my first semester working like this, like so many things together. But um, I think every week I just try to do better and try to find more time and so on. So and with the rest of the semesters, it got a little easier, I think. Yeah, once you learn something, it's easier to do the rest. <laughs> so I think the learning process in the first few semesters was really hard. But I had a lot of support also from classmates. Like I really liked in UT, uh, you probably had a similar experience that we really worked together on solving homeworks or solving things. Like the astronomy apartment that we had was so good at teamwork. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the best support ever to just do the classes and everything else. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think we have uh, a great department at UT Austin. Um, and I'm really glad that you were able to find support from scholarships. Uh, you know, as an international student, were you able to find enough scholarships? Because um, I know that a lot of them require you to be like a citizen or a permanent resident. Yeah, so there were every year I could, so every year I could apply to the Office of International Studies. Um, and the College of Natural Sciences. So those were the two big ones, but uh, now and then the astronomy and the physics department would also have some. So uh, there's like, yeah, every year I will, I will have like three or four opportunities only. <laughs> so yeah, it was very restrictive. And uh, that is that was very scary sometimes, but yeah, I, I, I was, very lucky, but I also, I, I had so much help um, because to work for all of these scholarships, you have to write essays and the university offers a very nice um, coaching for writing. You could apply for that. So I would like talk about my essays with these professional writers at the university and they would like help me out. So I think indeed UT just had so many resources for me to grow and get more and more opportunities. So that was really good. But yeah, it's it's <laughs> very restrictive and it was really hard, but I somehow could do it for three years or so. <laughs> so that was good. Yeah, that's that's pretty great. And I'm kind of, I'm glad that you're sharing um, how you did these things because it, it's helpful to know that universities typically have these resources, right? It doesn't occur to us that we could go sign up for these workshops. Um, for writing and uh, other things. Um, so that's that's pretty helpful. Yeah, so I, I remember if anyone needs some piece of advice, what I did the first semester, I went to every single orientation on College of Natural Sciences, international office, um, just everything. And that's how I found out about things and started knocking on doors and going to the undergraduate research office. And I was just really all over campus asking how can I stay here? <laughs> so yeah, just honestly ask like in person because it's the, sometimes you don't see these things online. Like you don't get an email about these usually. So yeah, just push hard. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very good advice. Um, and you've sort of covered everything I had for this question with advice and everything. So I'm <laughs> going to move on to your research. Um, nice. Could you talk a little bit about the topic as well as what makes it so exciting to study. Right, so I study some of the first born galaxies in the universe. And 
these galaxies were formed many, many years ago, let's say um, between 700 million years to 1 billion years uh, after the Big Bang. And this is a special time of the universe. This is called the Epoch of Reionization. And um, this is the time when the first galaxies become so powerful from all the stars that they have. Um, they are able to ionize the neutral hydrogen gas that was surrounding them. So it's the first time we can see light basically <laughs> from galaxies. Um, and it's pretty cool because uh, we can try to study these galaxies and see their properties to find out how this epoch of reionization happened, uh, for how long did it happen. And uh, in the past, I've worked on finding these galaxies doing blind searches with the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, and yeah, it was, that was my bachelor's project, my undergraduate project. And it was very cool. I really enjoyed it and I learned so much and I could get a paper out of it. And thanks to the candidates that I got from that, I thought about writing this James Webb proposal. Exactly a year ago, I was writing it um, with uh, Michaela Bagley, who also works at UT Austin. And yeah, we came up with this great idea to follow up on these galaxies and find out exactly at, uh, how distant they are and how, uh, how powerful they are in yeah, ionizing the universe type of idea. So yeah, that's that's been like one one part of astronomy that I focused on. But besides normal galaxies, I also study galaxies that have black holes in their center that are super, super massive. And we call these galaxies quasars. And usually these quasars also have um, jets coming out from like the accretion disk of the black hole. And these because of this reason, these galaxies appear so much brighter, so you can get way more information from these galaxies. And yeah, that's something very interesting. And I study this in all wavelengths from uh, optical to uh, infrared and radio. <laughs> so I'm also trying to do a little bit of multi-wavelength and it's been a very interesting journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I bet <laughs> that is a diverse but interconnected set of topics right um yeah yeah so yeah I, I think I was lucky that I could move from my bachelor's research to my PhD research to be somehow similar at least study the same epoch of the universe so yeah I think cool. one one thing that you know current students might find useful is learning how you picked your research advisor for your PhD um so can you talk a little bit about that you know, given your undergraduate experience, how did you approach this particular professor? Um, yeah, so for my PhD, I was keeping my options open in Europe because I was interested in learning more about the community here because I had a lot of experience with telescopes in the US, but of course Europe has their own telescopes and is a little different. And I got very interested, so I, applied for the program for the International Max Planck Research School PhD in Heidelberg. 
And um, it's very cool because in the same city of Heidelberg, you have like six different astronomy institutions. So there's a lot of like networking and you can find someone uh, basically in any, in any field if you know where to look for them. Um, and it so happened that I was very lucky because my current supervisor, he had just gotten a job here at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg. And he was looking for students to work on these massive galaxies and quasars in the epoch of ionization. So it just matched up perfectly. It was more like luck that when, you know, he, um, he launched this position and he also selected me as one of the candidates he would like to work with. I was like, oh God, <laughs> this is very good. But yeah, I think um, specifically I was looking more towards working with um, different variety of like telescopes, because I, I do a lot of observations. I think you can guess that by now. <laughs> uh, it was more that search rather than a specific supervisor to work with at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And um, I recall from our talks previously that, you know, initially it was challenging because there were some parts of the topic that were new to you. So um, could you also share with our listeners how you kind of navigated that phase with your advisor? Yes, so um, even though quasars are like a type of galaxy, they're just so different objects. You have to study them in different wavelengths. You can study them in X-ray. And I just had to learn a whole new side of literature. And um, I had to learn how these objects look in X-ray, optical, or UV, and infrared, and radio. And my first project was actually working with radio data that I had never done before. And it's very different to working with um, other telescopes that use you know, mirrors instead of antennas. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this, this was very challenging because um, yeah, I really had no idea <laughs> how to start. And even though my supervisor will give me steps on how to do things, sometimes I didn't know why I was doing it. <laughs> like, why am I reducing the data, the data in this way? <laughs> but yeah, so it was a huge learning curve, but I had a lot of support from postdocs as well, uh, who generally have more time than, you know, professors who are super busy doing like um, classes or having more like institutional meetings or stuff. So always be friends with your postdocs <laughs> because they can help you a lot. So I, I got a lot of help from everyone. And now I feel like much more comfortable looking at radio data. And that, that was my main challenge, I think, when I started the PhD. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I remember you telling me this and thinking, wow, that is very useful for me because, you know, I'm a second year student now. That was useful advice. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, you know, you mentioned this already that you were awarded time on the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, and that's so cool and exciting. Um, so <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you could share some details about, you know, the process of how you wrote the application. You kind of talked about that already, but just a little more about that. And also uh, some tips that you would like to share um, for observing proposals in general you know, that you might have learned from this experience? Right, yeah. So I think in general, if you have uh, an idea, a research idea, and you know of a telescope that can help you achieve your goals, 
you should always try to write a research proposal, no matter what, even if you think, I don't know, it's too soon or something like that. Because um, for instance, actually the first proposal I wrote <laughs> was for the VLA, that is an, a radio interferometer in Socorro, New Mexico. And we came up with the research idea after I had done some analysis on my data and we realized, oh, VLA will be very good. Hmm, let's see, okay, deadline is in a week. Let's write a proposal in a week. And I am PIing the proposal and it was like stressful because again, I didn't know much about radio telescopes. So getting familiar with how to calculate the time you needed to make your observations and all of that, like this was all in one week. And usually you should really take more time to write a proposal, but I was really rushing and, you know, I wrote it and it came through and it was great uh, because I had a lot of help as well from people who are more experts, but I think you should uh, really always keep an eye on the deadline. So now that I've had more experience, I always keep an eye on, okay, I know around March, there's a deadline for HST and then it's Bailey and like, you know, have a timeline <laughs> because there are always good research ideas and you just have to try um, to write them. And the thing about these research proposals in general is that you are really trying to sell a story um, because the person who's reading your proposal is not necessarily an expert in the field. Someone who's studying planets is reading about quasars. So I need to be able to explain it very nicely <laughs> so they understand and support uh, or vote in favor of my proposal. Uh, so yeah, I think in general, some good tips is like focus on being very straightforward and um, sometimes you can write the most important goals in a bold font or italics, something like that, to cut the cut, yeah, catch the attention of the reader. And the plots are very important. Make sure you do nice plots that are very clear, um, not, uh, not necessarily super colorful. Sometimes doing just two colors helps more to understand, okay, the theory is in, you know, blue and my observations will support be supported with this red dot somewhere. So yeah, I think keeping it concise is nice. And specifically for the JWST, uh, I thought about the proposal ever since I was in UT as an undergraduate student and I hadn't even finished the paper, but I was like, this would be great for James Webb. And my supervisor was also like, of course, you should like do it. We should do it at some point. Um, and then the time came to write a proposal. And of course, because of the pandemic this year or last year, <laughs> the proposal kept being postponed. So that was like, uh, it was like stressful to try to sit down and actually work on it. <laughs> but then when it finally happened, I remember it was pretty much exactly a year ago in October when I started to sat, to sit down and like, start making the plots and the, trying to get like the figures I needed to figure out what I want to observe and for how long. And the writing really just came down in the last few weeks, like the last two weeks, I think. Um, the deadline was November 25th for Thanksgiving. I will never forget <laughs> because it was so hard. Um, I think for James Webb, we all had the pressure that, you know, it's a super competitive telescope and everyone was working insanely about it. In, I know in UT they were, I know here in MPI, they were going like, you know, 
so overworked, all of us <laughs> trying to write these proposals. So um, yeah, it, for that one was particularly uh, more time consuming. And I had to learn to balance at that time doing my research and writing the proposal and sleeping and eating because it was just so much pressure. But yeah, I think um, the more people you think who can help you as co-authors uh, is the best <laughs> because um, for these proposals, you know, you don't have to do all the work. Usually the principal investigators or PIs have the idea and do like the main structure, but someone else can help you, you know, like running some models, something like that. So I was very happy that Michaela and I copied because she was way more experienced on JSWeb than me. So that was just really, really helpful. And in the end, I remember, you know, you submit your proposal and you're like, Poof, immediately you forget about it until you hear the results <laughs> because you just don't want to know about it. And then, hey, it happened to be accepted. And I remember I just couldn't believe it. I was jumping around my house. I was in Colombia at the time when I saw the email and I was like, what? And my grandparents didn't understand like how awesome that was, but they were like just so happy and everyone was happy. So, yeah. <laughs> Wow, that is such an exciting story. I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, <laughs> thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to wrap up um, our chat with, you know, what's your biggest advice for uh, science aspirants and students embarking on their journeys? Uh, I think the best advice is to not be afraid um, and just try to keep pursuing your dreams and your goals. And I say this to, you know, specifically people from underrepresented areas who don't know how to study astronomy, like it is possible, like you and I are examples of that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just think astronomy is, um, is a very good community in the sense that every year I feel like there's more support to bring more people from underrepresented areas into the field. And um, yeah, and I tried to do that in Colombia as well with the network of Colombian astronomy students that I mentioned. So yeah, I think just keep dreaming and don't be afraid. I think that's, that's the biggest thing. <laughs> yeah. No, I completely second that advice and that is applicable to everyone. So thanks for sharing that. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for being here, Sofia, and for sharing your journey. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. And I sincerely hope that our listeners had a good time as well. So thank you so much for being here. No, thanks to you, Anja, and I really had a good time. It's always great to talk to you and always great to share these experiences. And I really, really like the podcast idea you have right now because this is very inspirational for other women in science. So you're awesome as well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. This brings us to the end of episode two. I hope that you all had a good time listening to this. Please do stay tuned for the next one.